In a command post near the front lines, just 900 metres from the nearest Russian trench, Ukrainian soldiers are trying to keep their spirits high as they endure a second winter at war. We've got used to it somehow, says one. We've been here for more than a year. We're dressed in good equipment, says another. Everything's good. We just need to fight. They've spent all summer, they say, preparing their post for the long winter. And they seem to be prepared for a long war. So far, Ukraine's allies have helped them fight this war, with vital military supplies and also with political solidarity. But after a year when Russia's grip on the 18% of Ukrainian land it occupies was barely loosened, the West's support is under increasing pressure. Growing fears in Ukraine that foreign aid and shipments of foreign weapons are about to become a thing of the past. The Senate, they blocked billions of dollars of aid to Ukraine in a vote on Wednesday. Hungary has blocked $55 billion in EU aid for Ukraine. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Pollock. Today, is the West retreating from the Ukrainian cause? I talked to Dan McLaughlin. Dan, first of all, there has been lots of talk about how the US and Europe are distracted from the war in Ukraine by the need to deal with what is happening in Israel and Gaza right now. You've been paying close attention to all of this. Has the outbreak of the war in the Middle East had any impact on the war in Ukraine? I think it's quite clearly distracted, you could say, Western governments from what's going on in Ukraine. Ukraine's been the top foreign policy issue for lots of European governments and, and close to the top for the American government for, the, for a long time now. That changed very dramatically with events in Israel and Gaza over the last few months. Obviously, it's gone from the, the front pages of, of a lot of publications as well. And that's concerning for Ukraine. President Zelensky's administration has worked very hard to keep Western interests, the public's interest and the interests of leaders, because he knows that help is absolutely vital. That interest is absolutely vital. He wants people in the West to know what's going on in Ukraine because he thinks that's going to translate into pressure on Western politicians to keep helping Ukraine um, and to make sure that the, the, the troops have everything they need at the front, to make sure the air defences are fully stocked and are capable of, um, of fending off Russian missile barrages. So it's concerning for Ukraine. It certainly made a difference and it's just added to the uncertainty for Ukraine going into 2024. So today we're going to talk about how the war in Ukraine is going and whether international support for Ukraine is starting to dry up. So to quickly recap the past 12 months, at the end of 2022, Ukraine recaptured lots of territory and humiliated the Russian army in the process. And at that point, there was optimism. Now, over a year later, the situation is quite different. There have been no further major Ukrainian breakthroughs, despite a huge investment of effort, military material and human lives, of course. On the other hand, there have been few major losses either. The front line is roughly where it was a year ago. Russia captured the city of Bakhmut. Ukraine recaptured some territory in the south. And there have been some other Ukrainian successes, notably the destruction of Russian ships and aircraft. Is that about right, Dan? Have I missed anything we need to know to understand where the war is at as we begin with 2024? No, I think that's very accurate. There were great hopes pinned in Ukraine and, and uh, among its Western allies on the counteroffensive that you mentioned there, which began in June, but really didn't make 
huge amounts of progress um, in southeastern Ukraine. I think the plan, sort of the optimum scenario for Ukraine was to, to break through Russian lines in southeastern Ukraine, to cut down through Russian forces and make it to the Sea of Azov. That would have cut the Russian supply lines between the Russian border and Crimea and other parts of, of occupied southeastern Ukraine. But that just didn't happen. I mean, what, what the Russians did after taking over that area early in 2022 was build lots of fortifications, fortified positions, trenches, and huge minefields. And despite the, the, the influx of Western equipment for Ukraine, the forces found it extremely difficult to get through those minefields. So as you mentioned there, when we look at the, of the, at the map of the front line, it really hasn't moved very much. We stand basically where we were 12 months ago, which is frustrating for Ukraine, but also for Russia. Russia was looking to consolidate, you could say, this time last year after losing, as you mentioned, areas of Kharkiv region and Kherson region at the end of 2022. But the Russian gains, despite huge losses in manpower and equipment, have been, have been marginal as well. But fighting has intensified in recent weeks, has it not? We've seen continued fighting, I would say. What we've seen much more of in the last couple of weeks in particular, are the Russian airstrikes. Pulled from the rubble following yet another day of strikes carried out by the Russian military. Ukrainian authorities say cities across the country were targeted. In Zaporizhia, a residential building was damaged, forcing its residents out into the freezing cold. I mean, there have been extremely heavy Russian airstrikes over New Year. Um, and that's really, that's really the key concern for the Ukrainian defences at the moment. Around 500 Ukrainians are still arriving here in Ireland every week, so the situation in the country must still be extremely grave. And with millions of refugees and hundreds of thousands of casualties, the war must be taking a toll on the pool of men available to fight. Meanwhile, Ukraine's war also depends on the international supply of weapons, but there was a reported 90% drop in new pledges of international aid for Ukraine between August and October 2023, when compared to the same period the year before. So which is the bigger problem facing the Ukrainian army? A shortage of manpower or a shortage of weapons? They're both extremely serious issues for the Ukrainian military. If you look at manpower for a start, personnel, neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians actually reveal their uh, combat losses, but the Americans have estimated that the Russians have lost something like 300,000 men. That's death and injuries during the war, and, and, and they estimated the Ukrainian figures to be about half that. But then when you take into account the size of the armies, the Russian uh, pool of, of men under arms is about twice as big as the Ukrainian one. So it is a major challenge for Ukraine. They had a, a, a big influx of volunteers at the start of the invasion back in February 22. But that pool of volunteers has, has dried up over what is now almost two years of all-out war. Just before Christmas, President Zelensky said that he'd received a request from the army to conscript something like 450 or 500,000 new personnel into the armed forces. The army didn't confirm that that was the figure that it was looking for, but that seems to be round about what Ukraine is, um, is calculating at the moment as what it needs for future defensive operations, but also another counteroffensive at some point. It's going to be tough to get that number of people into the military. A significant number of Ukrainian men are abroad now, and also... The Ukrainian parliament is now looking at changing conscription rules to, to open up a bigger pool of 
the Ukrainian men that, that remain in the country to potential conscription. So that's a, a very hot political topic now in Ukraine. When you talk about the arms, yes, it's, it's absolutely crucial for Ukraine to keep receiving Western military equipment and ammunition. Russia has always had a, a, an advantage in terms of ammunition and shells available to it. So Ukraine needs hundreds of thousands of these shells, a constant supply of these coming from Western allies. At the same time, Ukraine is trying to build up its own military industry, something that was run down after the end of the Soviet Union. But it's very difficult to do that when the country is under attack. It's under missile attack and, and drone attack almost every night from Russia. So it's a big challenge to ramp up its own military industrial complex. So for the, the, the short term and medium term, Russia, uh, Ukraine is going to rely on um, on the help that it's getting from Western allies. And obviously those questions over continued political support and continued funding from both the United States and the EU put the, the, the consistency and the scale of that support under question. Coming up, is Western support for Ukraine waning? Last month, U.S. President Joe Biden made a statement which some say revealed he is quietly softening his support for Ukraine. President Zelensky, it's an honor to welcome you back to the White House. At a news conference with Volodymyr Zelensky, Biden said the U.S. would support Ukraine for, quote, as long as we can. As long as we can. This is a move away from his previous pledge of support for, quote, as long as it takes. Is there any clarity in Ukraine about how much they can rely on the US for support now and in the years ahead? And do they know where they stand on all this? Ukraine doesn't know where it stands. I mean, the US has always been a crucial, the key ally for Ukraine during this conflict, particularly during the almost two years of full-scale war. And the US has come through with, with much of the ammunition and much of the weaponry that, and much of the financial aid that Ukraine has requested. Not everything. Ukraine is always asking for more, including F-16 fighter jets, which it hopes is going to arrive sometime soon. But it, the, there's always been a question for, uh, over how long that, that this support can continue at the scale that Ukraine needs. That is particularly acute now, not just because we have this deadlocking Congress with re Republicans blocking um, the latest 50 or 60 billion worth of, of USA that the White House has requested, but also, of course, with a, a US presidential election coming up this year. Obviously, we can't predict the outcome of that, and that's a big question mark for Ukraine. So it just has to hope that the bipartisan support that has been there for it through most of this war, through the, the entirety of this full-scale war, in fact, is still there, and that the, the current political disputes in the states, which revolve around a combination of funding for Ukraine, for Israel, for border security in the United States, those things can be resolved and that, that ultimately the funds and the weaponry comes through. But it's unnerving. It's very worrying for Ukraine. It's all the way from, from, from the top level, from the presidential administration, who are trying to figure out what's going on to try and predict what's going on in, in what, and what will happen over the next year in US politics, right down to soldiers on the front line who, who read the stories, who look at the headlines, who listen to the reports, and are concerned that the ammunition they so, so crucially need will dry up. And we, the reports we hear from the front line suggest that those concerns are actually translating into units on the front line trying to conserve as much ammunition as they can now, because they're not sure 
that the continued flow that they need will be there for the, the weeks and months ahead. There was better news for Ukraine in December when the EU's European Council agreed that accession talks for Ukraine would begin and it could begin the process of joining the EU. Now, that gave a big psychological boost to Ukraine and to the President Zelensky looking ahead towards the future. But what does that mean for the war now? I mean, in practice, does it mean anything? In practice, no, I don't think it does mean anything. It was, as you mentioned, a a psychological boost for Ukrainians to feel that they are in some way getting closer to the European Union, that the European Union's doors are open to Ukraine. And, you know, also for, for, as we mentioned, for soldiers on the front line who are also following all the news, they want to hear some positive news now and again. They want to feel that the support from allies is there. Political support, financial support. So this was a boost, a bit of good news that you say was, that as you mentioned, was very welcome for Ukrainians at the time. But it doesn't really translate into anything concrete that will help Ukraine on the front line. I mean, it may suggest that that the financial support that Ukraine is desperately in need of to prop up the economy at this time will also continue to come from the European Union. So that is something of a boost and a, a bit of a silver lining at a time when it has been difficult in terms of news, in terms of morale for Ukraine in the last two, three months of last year after the counteroffensive kind of ground to a halt. But uh, but yeah, in terms of, of, of practical help for the troops on the front line, it, it doesn't translate into very much. It's also worth mentioning that at that same European summit, there was a failure to agree on 50 billion euro of funding for Ukraine. That was blocked by Hungary's Viktor Orban. And there are worries elsewhere too. In the Netherlands, a new coalition will include Geert Wilders, who opposes financial support for Ukraine. Are Ukrainians worried about the durability of European support? Absolutely. There was 50 billion euro in funding over the next four years that was on the table at that EU summit. And that hasn't come through yet. I mean, the EU is looking at ways to maybe break it down, other ways to to free up maybe 20 billion euros in support that can be released, kind of bypassing the Hungarian bloc on the bigger package of aid that exists at the moment. I mean, Ukraine does feel that... I think the support is there. Fundamentally, the support is there in the European Union. It is there in the United States. But it's extremely frustrating when they have heard, and they still do hear from European and and North American leaders all the time, that we will support you for as long as possible or as long as we can or as long as it takes, that these domestic political disputes are, are holding things up. U.S. Republicans are playing politics and it's working. In the Senate, they blocked billions of dollars of aid to Ukraine in a vote on Wednesday to further negotiations on border policy changes. The political advisor of Prime Minister Viktor Orban says that Hungary would lift its veto on the Ukraine funds if the EU would release all the frozen money, including 21.7 billion of cohesion money and 10 billion euros in pandemic recovery funds. It's tough for Ukrainians to to feel like the future of their country, their future security, their future as a sovereign nation, potentially, under Russian attack, is at stake and is being, to some degree, held hostage by domestic political arguments in all these countries, particularly when it's, uh, when it's election season. And it's going to be election season in a lot of countries over the next 12 months. If I were president, <coughs> and I say this, I will end that war in one day. It'll take 24 hours. I know Zelensky well. I know Putin well. I would get that ended in a period of You can break that deal. 100%. It would be easy. That deal would be easy. A lot of it has to do with the money. A lot of it has to do with the military, you know, that we're giving. But I would get that deal done within 24 hours. That war has to be stopped. That war is a disaster. 
An op-ed in last month's New York Times argued that Ukraine does not need to recover all its territory to defeat Putin and that Zelensky should not pass up any opportunity to end the bloodshed, even if it leaves Putin in control of about a fifth of Ukraine's territory. There's also been some speculation that Germany may be pressuring Kyiv behind closed doors to reach a peace deal with Russia. Dan, would Ukrainians ever accept this or are they still determined to continue fighting until all territories under Russian control are reclaimed? Well, when you look at uh, surveys that are carried out in Ukraine, um, it looks like support for the military operation, support for um, a, a continued struggle to liberate all of Ukrainian territory, is still very, very popular in Ukraine. Um, it would be extremely difficult for Zelensky or any Ukrainian politician to go to his people now and say, we have to reach a compromise with Russia. The losses in terms of, not just in terms of land, but in terms of people, especially in terms of people, have been so severe for Ukrainians. The privations that Ukrainians have experienced over the last two years have been so severe as well that there is not much appetite for compromising Ukraine now. So they're, they're relying on this Western support to basically allow them to, even if they can't push forward and try to deoccupy much more territory during 2024, at least to hold the line and to make sure that Russia doesn't make more gains and to try and hit the Russian supply lines, to hit Russian positions in occupied territory. There's continued pressure from, from Ukraine to receive longer-range weaponry from Western allies, which would allow Ukraine to strike not only deep inside uh, occupied ter territory, but inside Russia itself. That is what Ukrainians are talking about. They're not talking about compromise. They're not talking about reaching some kind of deal. They're not talking about a frozen conflict. Because, as Zelensky says, and I think this reflects the, the opinion through most of Ukrainian society, Russia under Putin would only use that kind of uh, pause in hostilities, that kind of freeze on the front line to uh, replenish Russia's own military, to build up its own stocks of ammunition, to draft more people into the army, to launch a new wave of, of attacks against Ukraine to try and take more territory. Because it's absolutely clear that uh, Russia has not changed its overall goals. So Ukraine and Ukrainians, I think, are ready to continue the fight and they would not accept anything that looks like compromise from their leaders at the moment. As you've mentioned, uh, all this talk of ceasefires suits Putin and there is a strong chance that he would exploit any ceasefire to regain strength, uh, rearm and strike again. But do you know, Dan, how the Russian public feel about this war nearly two years on? What are you hearing from the media within Russia? I mean, it's obviously very hard to tell because the tight grip that the Putin regime had on Russian society, Russian media, Russian politics before the war has become many times stronger and tighter since the start of the full invasion in February 22. So as we've mentioned before, it's in fact illegal to describe the war as a war in Russia. It's illegal to criticize the army and to criticize the, the political leadership of Russia on social media, for example. People are being prosecuted for this almost every week in Russia. Um, so it's very hard to gauge the true appetite among Russians for this war. We've seen some, uh, some small-scale, very small-scale protests from, for example, the wives and the mothers of soldiers who are being conscripted. I mean, they're saying they're not speaking out against the war as such, 
but they're saying that you know, their men have been serving for too long, that more people should be conscripted so that the burden doesn't continue to fall on the Russians that are fighting and have been fighting for uh, two years now in Ukraine. But we don't see any strong social movement against the war in Russia. Certainly when we watch state media, Putin is projecting strength. He's saying that Russians are united in this. He's, he's saying that this isn't a war of aggression in Ukraine. He's saying that Russia has been forced to go into Ukraine to effectively defend itself against a West that is determined to destroy Russia. Um, that's the message that he's putting out. And um, we, we don't see any effective opposition to it in Russia at the moment. Dan, bringing this all together, there are clearly serious threats to Ukraine's war efforts, but under President Zelensky, they remain determined to fight on. How do you think they're going to do that in the short term? What do we know about their military plans for the coming weeks and months? I think it's going to be uh, a case of consolidation, really. Um, military analysts say that Ukraine's not going to be in a position to launch, launch any kind of major counteroffensive, probably throughout 2024. Zelensky and his military have been criticised to some extent for not strengthening defensive positions in the way that Russia did so effectively in, in occupied southeastern Ukraine leading up to the counteroffensive. That's the thing that really frustrated Ukraine's counteroffensive this year. And before Christmas, Zelensky said that this is something we need to focus on now, fortifying our positions, making sure that Ukraine's defensive line is strong enough to withstand what will be renewed Russian attacks in the, in the months ahead. That's going to be the priority, I think, for Ukraine over the next 12 months. Maintain positions, make sure the defensive line is strong enough. Meanwhile, bringing in, probably in at, at the end of um, spring, early summer, probably the F-16 fighter jets that, Russia, that Ukraine has been calling for for so long. It looks like they're going to come online around then. Ukrainian pilots are now training on those jets uh, in the United States, and they will come through sometime towards, uh, as I say, probably early summer. That will be Ukrainians' hope, a crucial uh, element of strength and air defense in Ukraine. But the immediate concern, I think, for the next two or three months is going to be making sure that the Western support for Ukraine is strong enough and that it, that translates into more air defense systems, more ammunition for those air defenses, which are already being very, very thinly stretched. Um, that's going to be the key priority for the winter, I think, getting through renewed Russian missile and drone attacks on civilian targets and on military and infrastructure targets in Ukraine to make sure that when the spring comes, Ukraine is still in a position to hold the position that it, that it already has and also find a way, as we mentioned earlier, to bring more personnel into the armed forces because Ukraine is definitely going to need more numbers to withstand renewed Russian attacks through 2024. Dan McLaughlin, thanks so much for your time today. That's all for today. For more reporting on the war in Ukraine, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Sarah Pollock. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>